Well, we uh, have been watching a lot of what uh, the government is doing these days. People have their opinions one way or the other. One of the great passages in the Bible about the government is Romans 13. Romans 13 teaches that the purpose of government is to punish those who do wrong and to reward the citizens who are doing what is right. And um, we're grateful for our government. We're grateful for uh, the work that they do, working to the best of their knowledge to protect us through this COVID-19 crisis we're facing as a nation. We also appreciate when we're back in society doing all the things that we've been doing. We appreciate the police. They're there to help us um, avoid criminals or what the criminals want to do to us and to our property. We also regularly think about uh, the importance of the military, and uh, we're grateful for the military. We acknowledge our indebtedness to the men and women who protect our borders and any threat against our citizens. That is what um, government is supposed to be doing. But what happens when the government doesn't do what it's supposed to do? What happens when those in power, the rulers, turn on good people, on their citizens, people who obey the law, people who demonstrate love to others, who are going out and being productive and doing the things they're supposed to be doing. What happens when they turn on those kind of people? Even worse, what happens when government actually turns on the church and begins to take away the church's freedoms or to harass uh, churches that are standing for truth? Or even worse, they directly persecute by imprisoning or even worse, the people that are Christians. Well, we in America have enjoyed religious freedom for a long time, but we increasingly are seeing, and we've made mention of this before in some of our messages, we're seeing certain segments of politics in our nation um, attacking or beginning to speak against or wanting to erode the freedoms of gospel-preaching churches, conservative churches. We are being vilified for speaking the truth, for standing for what is obviously right, um, that no one can really argue with uh, some of the things that we're standing for because um, they're plain and obvious that these are, these are right things. We know that in our country, politics is changing rapidly. Um, it's, not, it's not changing in the direction that's favorable for Christians right now. And so we began to feel that and know that. And we were feeling that even before the virus hit. There were things that we were wondering what was happening to our country. Well, one thing that's good to do is to look back on the example of people who have gone before us. People have had to face persecution from their own government. And how did they handle it? And what did they do? Um, we can learn from them. In fact, the Bible was written so that we would look at times past and we would see the actions of believers and we would say, huh, I wonder if I were in that situation, what would I do? How would we handle this? And there you have their example, trying to live godly in an evil world, a world where government sometimes is swept up in the spirit of the age and becomes part of the, the world's evil system and turns on godly and righteous people. We uh, learn from them, how do we remain innocent as doves, not participating in any evil or wickedness, um, but yet also learning to be shrewd and wise as serpents, for that also is the will of God. Um, when 
government does what it's supposed to do, that's great. We cooperate with the government, and we know it's a God-ordained institution, and we're grateful for how God uses it to curb evil in our world. But when it directly attacks the church, what do we do? Well, we learn to appeal to a higher authority as believers have done before. Take your Bibles and open it now, if you would, uh, in the book of Acts to chapter 12. And we're going to look at a larger section of Scripture today, um, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. I'm going to read it through once at the beginning, and then we'll kind of move back through it today um, as well. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. And it reads this way. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer When she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to him, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, He described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison, and he said, Report these things to James and the brethren, and then he left and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. 
Well, a lot of Luke's focus um, through chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 has been the movement of the gospel out from Jerusalem, away from Jerusalem, and to other people, groups, to the Samaritans, and then to the Gentiles. We have seen the gospel move in different directions, to the south and east, into Africa with the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion, north into Samaria, north and east to the city of Joppa and also Caesarea and to Antioch. The word uh, is spreading. That's what Acts is showing us, and Luke is writing it out. And the church is, is growing as the gospel is spreading. As we reach chapter 12, God gives us a little snippet of his activity back in the mother church, back in Jerusalem. What has been happening there? Well, God has not forgotten the original church. He's not forgotten where, where all of the events of Christ, uh, his death and his, his crucifixion and his resurrection occurred and where the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and there was the birth of the church. God has not forgotten his people there. This tells an amazing event of how God uh, protected Peter and in so doing reconnects us with the activity of the Apostle Peter. Here we learn that worldly authorities, when they exercise their muscle and authority, cannot stop the progress of a praying church. Worldly authorities cannot stop the progress of a praying church. That should encourage us. No matter what we face in the future, we know that if we stick together and we pray together, we always have a higher authority to appeal to and that the work of the church cannot be stopped. And we're going to see that lesson through five actions in this text, five actions that reveal the power of prayer, particularly corporate prayer, five actions that reveal the power of corporate prayer. The first action is in verses 1 through 4, and that is King Herod attacks the church. Here's a king that actually attacks some of his own citizens in verses 1 through 4. Look back again at it. It says, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And then verse 2 talks about the, uh, the execution of James, put to death with a sword. And then verse 3 talks about how it pleased the Jews, and so he proceeded to arrest Peter, and how this was during the days of the unleavened bread. And then it talks about how he, Peter was put into prison and he was under a guard. Now, this Herod is the grandson of the more famous Herod we know about, usually when we think of Herod, which is a title, um, Herod the Great, who did all of the building of many uh, different uh, structures that were there in Israel, including the uh, fixing of the temple, making it great. Herod the Great's grandson is this Herod here, and he was known as Herod Agrippa I. Later in the book of Acts, we'll also read of another Herod called Agrippa. He's just called Agrippa, and Paul would have to stand before this Herod, and he is known as Herod Agrippa II, but the Bible will just call him Agrippa. So there's a Herod Agrippa I here, and then Herod Agrippa II. Herod Agrippa I was um, imprisoned earlier in his life by the emperor Tiberius, but um, when Tiberius died, he was released by Caligula, and he was given uh, a rule and a reign by that emperor. 
and his area of rule was in northern Palestine. It included a lot of the area we've been reading about here in the book of Acts. It included Judea, the province of Judea, and also Samaria. Dr. MacArthur in his commentary notes that, quote, because of his tenuous relationship with Rome, it was imperative that he, this Herod, maintain the loyalty of his Jewish subjects. And that helps to explain why this Herod was so uh, eager to please the Jews and so eager to attack the church. Like many in politics these days, Herod was a man motivated by worldly ambition. A lot of politicians are. Of course, he was the king. He was more than a politician. He actually had a rule. You might say that Herod is the exact opposite of what you and I are instructed to do in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world, it says there, nor the things of the world, and goes on to describe the things of the world as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and a boastful pride of life. In other words, money and power and prestige and lust, these are all the things that, that motivate worldly people and that motivated this Herod. As One of the rulers, he was supposed to serve his citizens, including any Jew who believed in Jesus as Messiah. There was nothing wrong with that. That was their religious persuasion. But instead, he turns on them, and he did it to curry favor with the majority of the Jews, or particularly the Jews that were in power, the the leadership of the Jews. And so it says here, Herod mistreated them. And we always hate to hear anywhere when the church is mistreated. We hate that. The term mistreat is the Greek term kakao, and it means to do them evil, to do them harm. Verse 1 indicates that he laid hands on some in the church, so more were hurt than just James and Peter. These that were hurt were described as belonging to the church. Literally, they are of the church. That preposition there indicates a relationship they had to the church. And membership in the church In the early church, by the way, it was clear. It was so clear that even those that were outside of the church knew who was on the inside of the church, and they used that as the standard to persecute them. And we would uh, say that this reminds us that it is God's will that we uh, identify with the church. If we're a believer in Jesus, we should be identifying with the body of Christ, which is the church. And indeed, they were, and they were mistreated for their association. Indeed, we find a group that is gathered for a prayer meeting at the house of John Mark's mother due to this persecution. And it, it's clear here that James takes the brunt of the wrath of the king. This James, by the way, is not the James who wrote the epistle of James. Rather, he is James the apostle. He is James, as it's noted here, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. He was, in other words, one of the inner three disciples of Peter, James, and John, those three disciples who were closest to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it looks like Herod had done his homework pretty well. He's captured two of the three closest to Jesus. So as we read verse 2, we should read that as a tragedy for the church down here below. Their beloved apostle, one of their great leaders, a great man of God, is killed now by the sword of an evil ruler. Well, this is the first apostle to die for his Christian faith. James, in other words, was used by God to set the pace for the other 11. 
It reminds us of the words of our Lord Jesus in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus was killed and now one of his closest disciples is put to death. We don't even get to hear a testimony from this James as we did, for example, from Stephen where he was preaching an entire sermon right before being stoned to death in Acts 7. But I would say that James's actions speak very loudly here. He made a sacrifice. He persevered in his faith, even to the point where he knew he was going to be put to death for his Christian faith, and that was okay with him. He died the death of a martyr, and he did so for the king of heaven. You know, there are a number of movies we've probably been watching, and in some of those movies, they always have some, well, in a soldier movie, they'll have some soldier say something like, you know, die well, or, you know, die, die in an honorable way. Well, here we have James who died in the most honorable way. Whereas the apostles had been threatened previously, they'd even been whipped and they'd been imprisoned, James proved faithful to the end. And he set himself up as an example because every one of these other apostles would end up dying for their faith, except probably uh, his brother, John, who died after much persecution and in old age. I'll say to those of you that are struggling with fear right now. I don't know if it's fear of the virus or other fears that you're struggling with. You're wondering about life, but you just see that fear and shyness and timidity control your life. You see an example here of a bold Christian, and I hope that helps to free your soul somewhat and realize, you know, the worst thing that can happen to any of us is death. And that's in some ways the best thing that can happen to us because it takes us out of all of our suffering and brings us into the presence of Christ. James did not fear death because he followed a leader who had already conquered death. And that's, that should be our mindset as well. You may recall, as we continue to think a little bit more about James here, Jesus' prophecy that he made to James and John way back in Matthew chapter 20, when Salome, the mother of James and John, made a formal request to Jesus as they were getting ready to come to Jerusalem. And she said, I'm asking that you seat these two sons of mine at your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom. What a bold woman Salome was. It comes from Matthew 20, verses 22 and 23. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. Wow. And he said to them, my cup you will drink, but to sit on my right and on my left. This is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus said, James and John will drink the cup of suffering. And indeed, James now drank that cup. You know, we pray for our leaders and that God protects them. I'm talking about our leaders in church. And we pray for uh, our spiritual leaders that God would preserve them and protect them until they have served their purpose on earth. But there does come a time where God has finished his work through them and he takes them into heavenly glory. Well, Herod's second step here was to arrest Peter. You know, the Jews liked the first one, so Herod goes for an encore. He's seeking popularity here. The first execution really pleased the Jews. And it was during a Jewish religious festival, right? 
And so they thought, he thought, this is, this is great. Let's do more of this. And so now he arrests Peter and he intends clearly to do him harm. And since this was during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, um, you can tell that there were a lot of Jews that were gathered for that high and holy festival. Many from the diaspora from around the world had been gathered, and here they were. And it was his chance to gain popularity even with a broader Jewish audience. Verse 4 really outlines Herod's plan. I'm going to arrest Peter, put him in prison, guard him with four squads of soldiers, and then I'm going to have him put to death. This was a clear exertion of his authority. Where did he get his authority from? He got it from Rome, from the emperor. And now he had the authority, he had the power, and he decided to use it for his own evil purposes. So you see, here is the exertion of worldly authority. Sometimes it makes believers tremble in their boots. But remember what Jesus said to us in in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And that's where Herod is actually heading as we read even further in Acts. When Jesus was arrested, by the way, and Pilate threatened him in John 19, verse 10, do you not know that I have authority to release you, Jesus? And I have authority to crucify you? Jesus showed no fear. But uh, he knew who held all authority when he replied, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. He meant even above the emperor of Rome, the highest authority, even above the angels, even above the evil powers, there is one who sits high above. And that highest authority is the father above. And Jesus knew that his crucifixion would never be allowed unless God had a plan for it. That's the way we ought to understand this, that when God allows something, it's because he's working something good through it. And we must remember who holds the real authority. And that leads us to the second action here, the second action, and that is that the church appeals to that higher authority, to God, in verse 5. Look at verse 5. And so Peter was kept in prison, but, and here's the appeal of the church, prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. With the government turned against the church, where were they to turn? Who were they to appeal to? Not to the emperor in Rome. He would have no pity. Rather, they appealed to the king of heaven. Peter was being carefully guarded in prison. But, and here's the contrast, prayer for him was being made by the church fervently. You know, sometimes people say, well, what can we do? What can we do about a difficult situation? Well, you know, they say... I guess there's nothing left to do but pray. Prayer is the first thing we should do because it's a powerful weapon given to the church. We get to appeal to our our head in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has all authority in heaven on earth that's been delegated to him. And so we appeal to him right away. And this is what this church did. It says prayer was being made fervently. That's the Greek term ektenos. It, It means with great energy, or it even means to be stretched to the limit with with one who's exerting themselves with great effort. Actually, it's a term that was used of Jesus's prayer in the garden in Luke 22, verse 44. It says, being in agony, Jesus was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. This is hard prayer 
People were focused. They were not daydreaming. They were, they were intense in their prayer together. Yes, the church here was doing the right thing. They faced great injustice. They faced grave difficulty. Their main leader was about to be executed. Well, I'll tell you what, that's the kind of thing that'll bring people out on a Wednesday night when the church all of a sudden gets threatened, right? When people are not usually saying, ah, you know, I don't really want to go out to, to prayer meeting. They'll come when the church is threatened. And so here they are. Do you see the importance of corporate prayer? I hope you do. Yes, the, the Lord our God answers our prayers individually. That's true. But there are times the church as a community needs to come together, even if that coming together is online, to join forces, to pray collectively against the forces of wickedness. Churches who pray together, yes, they not only stay together, but they get to collectively see the power of God working. One of the benefits of corporate prayer is since we're all praying about something that's really difficult and seems hard to accomplish, when God does it, we all see it together and that lifts the faith of the entire community. Corporate prayer is regularly seen in the New Testament. They prayed collectively on the day of Pentecost and before the day of Pentecost when God answered and in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, After the Spirit came, they were praying together regularly in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 during the time of public prayers in the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, even in the Lord's Prayer, the Lord taught the disciples to pray, and they asked that question together, and He answered them, Pray then in this way, Our Father who art in heaven. In other words, He anticipated the disciples being together and praying together. You may remember when we prayed together as a church collectively to have to increase our pastoral staff and to give us an associate pastor. And as we prayed together, look how God answered. And as we see that answer, it's, it's quite a joy for us, quite a joy for us to have Pastor Gabe with us. Remember when we prayed for a building and we were locked into two leases that were continually shackling us and particularly the Lord led us by some of the insights of Pastor Plumley, and it seemed an impossible situation. And then the Lord opened up the possibilities by this very building that, well, not all of us are in right now, but I'm standing in, and we've certainly benefited from, and we will continue to benefit from it. God answers prayers, and he got us out of leases. The largest prayer meeting I ever remember this church being in was the Sunday evening after on Sunday morning I announced that I had cancer and people came out in droves and prayed fervently. And five, coming up on five years since I've had cancer, we see God is still working and we get to benefit from seeing how he works. Well, with Peter's life in the balance, the church made their appeal to the supreme authority in the universe who can override the decisions of any man and any evil spirit. Last Sunday, on Easter Sunday, we learned that Jesus was given as the head of the church, uh, given as the head of the church to the church. In other words, Jesus' headship is a gift to the church to give power to the church. The church has power. Well, one way we see our power and realize our power is by appealing to our powerful head because he's really the one with the power. And then he empowers us. He answers prayer. So the church made their appeal to Christ and to God. And now we go to the third action. 
And that is the Lord above answers their prayers. And this is a big section of our text, verses 6 through 11. The Lord above answers their prayers. Verse 6, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Well, God's timing was perfectly demonstrated here. He waited until the very night before Peter was going to be brought out and probably executed. And we see Peter actually at rest. We see Peter trusting God. He's on a cold prison floor, keep in mind, with chains on both of his arms, both of his hands, and guards to his left and to his right. His life is on the line, and yet Peter is sound asleep, so much so that when the angel goes to wake him, he has to strike him. I think Peter's grown a little bit to be like his master. Remember Jesus when he fell asleep in the boat and the wind and the waves were blowing? And they're like, how can you sleep right now, Lord? We're about to perish. But Jesus was sound asleep, trusting God. Well, the text invites us to compare the security detail of King Herod with the power of God's angel. Herod might have been told of the escape of the apostles once before in Acts chapter 5 and 19 when they were in prison. And so this time Herod was taking no chances. Peter was positioned between two soldiers bound with chains with two more outside the prison door, a total of four squads of soldiers, 16 tough hombres right here surrounded Peter. We would call this maximum security prison. Humanly speaking, the situation looked impossible to break through. But, you know, evil rulers fail to take into account the divine element in life. And so we see in verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Verse 8, And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And... He went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. How cool is that? And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. God's secret agent was at work here. This secret agent is called an angel, an angelos. And uh, this guy is more efficient and effective than James Bond. He's carrying out the secret mission of God. Notice that uh, only one angel was needed to handle what we would consider an almost impossible situation. Herod needed a prison, he needed bars, he needed a gate, an iron gate, many soldiers. He flexed his muscle. And God, who has unlimited resources, he said, you know what? We're going to take care of this with one angel. He probably picked some, some angel up there and said, you go and you handle this. And he handled it so effectively. One angel able to get past all of the human security and bring Peter along as well. And when the angel appeared in that cell, there was light that shone from him. Why? Because angels come from the glorious presence of God. They can't help but shine sometimes. The light seems to be just enough to light the way where Peter could find his sandals and everything like that, but not enough to wake the soldiers. 
and then he systematically freed Peter from prison. The walls did not matter to the angel. The chains did not matter. The guards did not matter. Even the iron gate didn't matter. Uh, there was no key. There were no iron cutters. He didn't need any of that. He's silent. He's swift. He's effective. Every barrier is no barrier to the heavenly visitor. To get Peter up, he just kind of whacked him on the side and roused him. The angel told him to hurry. We have only a few moments here. He knew how it would work. He put on his sandals. He girded on his clothing. And Peter is completely compliant, even though he thinks he's dreaming. He thinks it's a vision of some kind. And he follows the angel in this, in this vision, this, this shining man. He follows him out of his prison. They could see him sort of stepping around the soldiers and going out into the streets of Jerusalem and out into his freedom. And the angel took him a little further down the street, just far enough to make sure he couldn't be spotted from anybody in prison. And then notice, there goes the angel. He disappears immediately, goes right back to heaven. As we've learned before, angels do not hang around on earth. You know, many of the TV shows have them hanging around and talking with people and all of that. This is not the angel's normal realm. They do their job, they accomplish their mission, and then they, they go, they exit. Verse 11 is where Peter realizes this is not a vision. This is not a dream. His mind kind of caught up with his actions. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Listen, those words out of Peter's mouth are the key to interpreting this entire historical account. They are the lesson we are supposed to learn. The Lord sent forth his angel. The Lord rescued Peter from the earthly ruler and the evil Jewish people and what they wanted to do to Peter. Evil men work, but God intervenes. God was not done with Peter yet on earth. God had more plans for Peter. And so God stepped in, God heard the prayers, and God took action. And now that leads us to the fourth action. And that is the praying church, get this, is astonished with the answer to their prayer. The praying church is astonished. This is in verses 12 through 17. Again, another large chunk of this uh, text. Look at verse 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. Now, there are a lot of Marys in the Bible. So immediately Luke clarifies which Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Corporate prayer right there in that house. So Peter, imagine that. He's standing alone. It's nighttime. It's the middle of the night, actually. He's somewhere in the middle of the streets of Jerusalem, but he knows Jerusalem well. And when he finally comes to himself, he figures out where he is and he goes straight to a home. It's probably a home where they had met many times before. Some speculate that this was a home um, where they were in the day of Pentecost. Others think it, it might not, you know, might have been this home or that home. People don't know for sure, but it looks like it was a home that was used a lot. It is the home of Mary. Which Mary? The, the mother of John Mark. Now, this woman is a clearly a believer, and she was likely a wealthy woman. Why do we say that? Because she had a large home, and she had servants. By the way, it is not a sin to be wealthy. A lot of the Proverbs speak of how working hard makes people rich. God only instructs 
that the rich be generous with their means and their money and be ready to share. Read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, for example. God doesn't tell the rich, get rid of all your belongings as if money and belongings are evil. No, he says, use them to help those with less. Well, Mary did that. Mary used her home to serve the kingdom of God. And her son, John Mark, who, by the way, is known to us more as Mark, because he is the writer of the second gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark is one that God would use more. We'll see him again in the book of Acts, and we see him coming up in Paul's letter. And also, church history says that this is the Mark who wrote down Peter's sermons later in Peter's life as he traveled and preached and actually became the source material for the second gospel. And so Mark and Peter are going to have a future together. Verse 13, when he knocked at the door, Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, of course, Peter's a teacher in the church, and so she would have heard him teach many times and known his voice. Because of her joy, she did not open the gate. (laughs) She lost her mind for a minute, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. Well, Peter's out there knocking, probably loud enough to be heard on the inside, but not too loud to be heard on the outside in the street because he knows he needs to hide. He knows that Herod's guards are going to be looking for him very diligently, so he's cautious. By the way, that's a little reminder to us also, just because God promises to protect us and because God sends his angels sometimes to rescue us doesn't mean we should put the Lord to the test and be careless in the way we handle ourselves. He knew that, and so he's being careful in the streets, and he's going to go into hiding. Well, here is this precious servant girl, Rhoda, who goes to the gate door, hears Peter's voice, recognizes it. She believes in the answer to prayer. She comes running back into the prayer meeting. She joyfully announces it. She gets it. She believes it. And yet, verse 15, they said to her, what? You are out of your mind. So maybe there's a little prejudice here. Here's a servant girl. What could she possibly know? But she kept insisting. It was the truth. She she kept saying that over and over again. But they kept saying it is Peter's angel. Now, what is that all about? Well, here they are praying for Peter's protection, probably praying for Peter's deliverance, knowing something bad's about to happen to the lead apostle. And God has just answered their prayer with an incredible answer to prayer. And they are incredulous that God would actually answer it so quickly and so powerfully. Oh boy, sometimes God takes the little faith that we offer up to him. We believe, but our our faith just is not as strong as it ought to be. And God knows that. God understands our weaknesses. And God goes ahead and answers anyway, even though we don't have perfect faith. We might ask, why do we doubt the Lord our God? Because we don't know him all that well. Why do we doubt him when he answers prayer? Because we don't believe in the power of prayer as much as we should. Why don't we expect God to answer our prayers more? Why does an immediate answer to prayer surprise us so? You know, God doesn't always answer immediately, but he can And there are many examples in Scripture where he does. Well, someone there presented the theory, this is Peter's angel. It can't possibly be Peter. Jews believed in guardian angels, and so 
someone posited this and it seemed to prevail upon them as their opinion. But look at verse 16. But Peter continued knocking. What's he going to do? I mean, he's got to, he's got to inform people. And he's got to go off in hiding. He keeps knocking. And when they finally opened the door, they saw him and they were amazed. Amazed? How about this? They were flabbergasted. Wow. It really was Peter. God is amazing. God does amazing things. And God amazed them as he often amazes us. We serve an amazing God, people. He's amazing. You notice as you go through the Bible and you see how God does these supernatural events and he answers prayer, that he doesn't do it always in the same way. We read something and then we expect him to answer it in this way and he answers it this way. Why, why does he do that? Because he wants to show us how creative he is. He wants to show us what kind of resources he has, that he's in control over so many different things. The way he answers prayer in our own lives is not always going to be the same way. Don't expect him to do that. He's an amazing God. Psalm 115 and verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Must be kind of fun for him to answer our prayers in different ways each time. There was a very humbled emperor named Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that guy? And his testimony in Daniel 4.35 is, is kind of a cool testimony. When he finally came to his senses, he said, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but, and he's talking about God in the heavens, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereign over all. Yes, that includes the puny King Herod. Should it surprise us that he answers prayer in different ways each time? No. He has control over all aspects of creation. Verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, I don't know what that is. What that is. Today it would be like that. You know, we'd say, please be quiet. Maybe he was like, tone it down some, you know, you're too loud. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Notice that what the angel does, the Lord does, because he's the angel of the Lord. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And then he left and he went to another place. We're not told where that was. Well, whatever, whatever gasps and startled praises came from the mouths of those in that house, uh, Peter had to temper them a little bit, and he motioned to them to remain quiet. Um, he probably had stepped inside the gate and told them the whole story just so they would be encouraged by their prayers. By the way, we need to share answers to prayers with one another and not just when we have a prayer request, but how God answers it. Why should we share that so that we'll be encouraged to keep praying, right? It says Peter left. He exited. He went to another place. And Peter does not emerge again until the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. So we don't know where he went. But Peter said, take all of this information and report it to James. And you might say, how can I report it to James when James was just put to death? Because this is a different James. The leadership of the church in Jerusalem fell to another James. James, the Lord's brother. This is the James that wrote the epistle of James, 
and would become the lead or the senior pastor in the church of Jerusalem for many, many years. And so with that comment, we realize that God continues to direct and expand and grow and protect his church. Not even earth's authorities can stand in the way of the progress of God's church. And we come to the fifth and the last activity, and I think this one's kind of humorous for us in a sense. In verses 18 and 19, the fifth action is the worldly authority, that is the king in this case, is frustrated. He is mad and frustrated. Uh, Wow, look at verse 18. Now, when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards in order that they be led away to execution. I would say this is comical if it weren't such a tragedy for them. There was no small disturbance among the soldiers. Well, yeah. What explanation were they going to give to their superiors? Where did he go? You can't just evaporate. You can't just disappear. And there's no way he could get out of there, humanly speaking. No way. They should have known something divine happened. And the soldiers knew that to lose a prisoner could result in their own execution. And it did. Well, Herod spent time searching for Peter. He couldn't find him. The only thing Herod knew to do was to examine the soldiers He was not satisfied with their answers, and he had them put to death. That's what a frustrated and embarrassed worldly king does. He even executes his own soldiers. I don't know why he would think all 16 of them would all lie to him at the same time. God's deliverance of the righteous does not obligate him to rescue the unrighteous and those who serve a king who is unrighteous. And then it says, He, that is Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. I guess Herod had expected to be loved by the Jews, to gain more favor with them. He was doing it for political reasons. And now his whole plan just fell apart. And frankly, he looked foolish. So what did he do? He exited town. I guess better to go on vacation than to suffer humility where he was. You know... Rulers who do evil things are often frustrated. Why are they frustrated? Because they stand in the way of God. They don't factor God as a reality to deal with. Psalm 2 may be the best example of that, where it says in Psalm 2 that all the kings of the earth take their stand with their military behind them against the Lord and against his anointed, that is the Messiah. And they actually want to break off God's rule, but it says he who sits in the heavens laughs at them. Dr. MacArthur points out in his commentary that they should have listened to the advice of Gamaliel, who had told the Jewish leaders back in Acts chapter 4, that if the church of Jesus was a movement of God and they fought against that church or harmed that church, they would find themselves fighting against God. That's exactly what Herod was doing, fighting against God. And how foolish did he look? Uh, He's foolish because you cannot beat God. Yes, some of us on earth may suffer loss, but we will not be beaten. We will be victorious. But God's plan for his church cannot be beaten. Isn't that what Jesus promised Peter and 
the other apostles that not even the gates of Hades would prevail against his church? Matthew 16, 18. Yes, some of us will suffer for the sake of righteousness. We will give our testimony that we'd rather suffer harm than give up our commitment to the truth. And that will glorify God and that will honor Christ. But often God is ready to answer our prayers, ready to thwart even what evil rulers on earth propose to do. Beloved, what should we learn from this? Never, ever should we neglect corporate prayer. Never should we think of it as a side issue, an extra meeting that we go to. This is how God works. The connection between the prayer and God working through the angel is very clear in this passage. God moves when his people pray, and his people need to know that and be committed, not just to praying, but also to praying corporately, particularly when we face extraordinary circumstances like we're facing now, and how we can grow our church improve our church, and continue to minister to those who are already in our church. Let us make sure we pray together for that. Join me in prayer now. Father, thank you for this text that reminds us of your power, that tells us who to turn to when we face daunting circumstances from powers on earth, and that remind us of the power of corporate prayer. May we be committed to that, Lord. May you boost our faith and remind us that you do answer our prayers. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.